Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. 1 Peter chapter number 1, as you do so, I want to say thank you to Brother Dan for filling in in the pulpit so capably over the last week. And I heard nothing but good things in the message that I've heard so far. It was a blessing to my soul. And so we are blessed here at Liberty Baptist Church to have this family not only with us, but to be able to know that uh, when our family is away, tending to different needs of the ministry, and even as we were away, being able to report to supporting churches, not just a way just to have fun, uh, but to be able to tell supporting churches, thank you for investing in this ministry for 10 years to know that the pulpit will be capably filled. And I'm so thankful for that. And it doesn't hurt that those two kids are cute too. How about them, huh? Those girls are something else. So, uh, so I mean, we're glad for the adults too, but I will say the, the girls, I mean, really, uh, that was what put it over the top for us for sure. So we're thankful for them. Well, it's a joy to be able to be in 1 Peter here this morning because it represents us really in earnest getting into our series, Add to Your Faith. But by talking about adding to your faith, I think we need to start here this morning. How can you add to something that you either don't have or that you don't understand in the first place? No, how can you add to something? Add to our faith. That's the theme this year. How can you add to something that either you don't have or that you don't understand in the first place. You know, you couldn't make an addition to a home that you don't have. You know, imagine going to our apartment complex and going to the leasing office and saying, we'd like to put an addition onto our apartment. They'd say, um, good luck with that probably because it doesn't belong to us. We couldn't do that. You know, you can't add money to a bank account that doesn't exist or a savings account, a 401k, an IRA. Uh, imagine going to the, to the bank and talking to the teller and saying, I'd like to make a deposit. They said, uh, what account? Oh, it doesn't matter. I don't have one. <laughs> now, if you want to make that in my account, you're certainly more than welcome. But uh, no, you can't do that if you don't have an account. You, you just couldn't do it. You can't add two numbers together if you don't know what one or the another number is. You, you have to be able to know what the numbers are to be able to add them together. Listen, these, these are very simple things that I'm talking to you about. No one here probably is very confused by what I'm mentioning. But we can't really add to our faith until either we know that we're in the faith or if we are in the faith that we understand more about what our faith is about so then we can add to it. So with our theme this year being add to your faith, it's important that we make sure we know what we possess so that we can then more adequately understand how to add to it. So this morning, we're going to begin our study in First and Second Peter, this study that I hope will take us through the entirety of the two books in the Sunday mornings of this next year. But this morning, the title of my message is simply this, Let's Talk About Faith. If we're going to add to our faith, let's talk about faith this morning. Would you stand please for the reading of God's Word? We're in First Peter, and we'll be in chapter 1, and then we'll read the first five verses 1 Peter chapter number 1, the first five verses where it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, 
and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is a lot to look at in these five verses. So I don't know what you're doing over the next three or four hours, but no, I'm just kidding. I don't, I, I'm fully aware that everyone would walk out if it was three or four hours, but over the next few minutes, I hope that we can adequately cover some of this and help you to understand what faith is so that we can add to our faith. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and for these people. I'm just so blessed to be able to stand before them. Lord, I, I never take it for granted uh, that you've called me to do so, enabled me, and at the same time that these folks would willingly be here today to, to listen, not necessarily to me, but to your word. And so I pray that's what they would hear today, and that's what would abide in their hearts far beyond when this morning is done. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, before we get into our text this morning, I want to acknowledge that just like my message or messages two weeks ago introducing this series, there's a lot to be able to cover in just the very short space that we have here. There's a lot of theological concepts. There's a lot of big words that were presented in just these five verses alone. There's many different words and phrases or individual verses, really, that we can build entire sermons around, quite honestly. But yet this year, I do want us to take more of what I would call a 30,000-foot view of the book of 1 Peter and then also 2 Peter later, meaning this is that we're not always going to do a close examination of every single concept that we find as we might do on a Wednesday night when we dive deep into certain books. I'm praying and I'm hoping that we can show you some of the larger overarching concepts that we find in the book, encourage you that way, and then maybe get your mind engaged a little bit in doing some personal study over some of the words and some of the ideas that we see. For instance, maybe doing a word study on your own, taking a concordance and looking up some of those words and finding other places in the Bible where those words might occur. Or even if you have questions about some of these things that we preach on and talk about from 1 Peter and 2 Peter, I'd love to be able to answer your questions, whether it's at your home or in my office later on to be able to talk to you about that. But in this series, I do want to set some expectations that we'll be going through at a fairly rapid pace. And it's not necessarily because we want to do a disservice to the Word of God, but because I want us to find some of the larger concepts of the book to be able to help us to add to our faith. So with all that being said, our text starts with Peter just like at the beginning of 2 Peter, we saw two weeks ago, what is he doing? He's introducing himself and he's identifying the recipients of this epistle. Because remember, the word epistle simply means a letter. And so Peter is writing a letter to some people. And in verse number one, he's saying who he is and he's saying who this letter is to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you'll remember we saw in 2 Peter, although he's an apostle, he considered himself a servant before an apostle. But he introduces himself as an apostle here of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that might sound kind of strange, one, because we don't know where those places are, and two, because he's talking to strangers. Now, I'll say this with Liberty Baptist Church, we might have a few strangers around here, at least some strange people, and starting with the pastor, right on down. So that's, we might have a little bit of that. I thought I'd get more amens than that, quite honestly. When I, uh, so I'm, I'm proud of you. Thank you for that. My ego has been boosted just by you not amening that one certain phrase. But yes, strangers. No, no, I'm not talking about the way that we act. Strangers, it's really similar to the way we would call someone a pilgrim. Remember, the pilgrims were people who went from, particularly in our area, they went from England, and then they went to Holland, and then they went to Plymouth. And that word pilgrim literally meant this, they were without a home. 
They're going from place to place to find religious freedom. By the way, don't buy what the modern history books will tell you today, that they were simply looking for economic opportunity. But they came to this country to be able to have religious freedom, to be able to worship the Lord in both spirit and truth. But we call them pilgrims because they went from place to place without a home. Do you realize that you and I are just pilgrims in this world? that you and I are on the road to our real home, which is heaven. And this will come up again later on in chapter 2, verse number 11, where it says that we're strangers and pilgrims. And it says to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So we'll look at that concept later on. We're in this world, but we are not of this world. To the strangers who are scattered abroad. Now this is important because it tells us that these people without a home, which would have been Christians, were scattered. Now, why would that have been? Well, we look at the time period in which this was written, and we understand that Rome's persecution of Christians was in full swing, that it was not safe to be able to be a Christian. Certainly, we look all the way back to the first church in Jerusalem, and they were persecuted as well. But Rome has made it its business to persecute Christianity throughout the empire, Nero being one of the most zealous so. But all of this is taking place and Christians are being scattered abroad. And it mentions these areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these are places in what we would call today modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, this area here. But it's a reminder that persecution is real. And understanding who this letter is written to does help us understand as we read it why Peter is saying certain things to the people he's speaking to. And in fact, 15 times in this letter alone, Peter refers in some form or fashion to the suffering of believers who have been persecuted. So what's going on? Peter, a servant who also is an apostle, we learn that from 2 Peter, is writing to persecuted Christians who had to leave their homes, who had to scatter themselves all over what we would call the nation of Turkey today, and he's writing to these people. Now, could you imagine for just a moment that these people were on the run? These people were persecuted for their faith. There was likely some fearfulness, some discouragement that had set in. And in doing so, Peter, in writing to these people, wants to give them comfort. He wants to give them hope. And so I think it's important that as we read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, the sequel, if you will, will be much in the same vein, that we read it through the prism of understanding that these are not people that are living in relative comfort or ease. That these are people, these are believers who are living through very difficult times. And Peter says this, there's some things that I want you to know that will be helpful to you as you're scattered. There's things that will be helpful to you as you're discouraged. There's hope. So just pay attention and listen, and I'm going to give you some things that will help you, even though you're scattered from where you might be calling home. So with Peter giving that brief introduction in verse number one, he pivots right into the meat of the message, right into the heart of the letter. He, he spends very little time with introductions. Even Paul typically will give three or four verses that we would call introductory verses or introductory statements. Uh, extending grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ, usually explaining his prayers to that church or to those churches. But Peter has none of that. He's abrupt. I mean, we're talking about Peter, right? We're, hey, he's saved. He's being moved by the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, he's still Peter. He says, listen, this is who I am, but let's get right to it. There's things you need to know. There's some things that are going to be helpful to you. And I want to talk to you about some of those things. And so he gives this brief introduction and then pivots to an explanation 
about faith. And again, if we're going to add to our faith, we must come to understand what faith is all about. And so just as abruptly as he moved into his message by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want to get right into our message here this morning. And the first thing that I want you to see from our text is this. When it comes to the issue of faith, there's been an incredible effort. Number one, when it comes to this issue of faith, there's been an incredible effort. You know, when the world thinks about salvation, if they think about it in the first place. But when the world thinks about salvation, what do they think of? They think of effort, don't they? You've got to do. You've got to perform. You've got to make things happen. You've got to be a good person. You've got to keep your nose clean. You've got to give enough money to the church. You've got to make sure that you're a member. You've got to be baptized. You've got to do, 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 do. You've got to, to be able to achieve. And there's so much effort that is involved when it comes to this issue of salvation according to the theology of man and according to the theology of false religion. But yet, biblically, that's not true faith. When it comes to the issue of faith, it's not about what you need to do, but rather what's already been done for you through not just Jesus Christ, but through Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Look at it again in verse number two. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Do you realize right there in verse number two, the incredible effort that was involved to secure your salvation? Do you realize that it wasn't just Jesus Christ who was involved in your salvation? And I say that not without any kind of misunderstanding. Listen, if it was just Jesus Christ, it would be an amazing thing what he did for us. But it was Father and Son and Holy Ghost working together in concert, giving their effort to secure salvation for you and for me. It says, first of all, in verse number two, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, depending what you have heard about this term election or foreknowledge, those words might get you a little bit nervous. Pastor, why are these words here? What does it mean that God elects some? And there is a form of theology called Calvinism or Reformed theology that, that would suggest that some were elected by God to be saved while others were elected by God to damnation. And I can tell you that as much as you might see that word election and foreknowledge there, understand this, that's not what is mean, meant here by the text that we are reading. See, foreknowledge, literally, if you were to, to do more background work and study into it, the word foreknowledge here means to set one's love on one person or persons in a personal way. To set one's love on the person or persons in a personal way. Literally, it means this. Before you chose God in salvation, before you accepted the gift of salvation and faith, God chose you. But he didn't just choose some. He chose all to be able to receive the gift. It's just incumbent upon us to be able to recognize that gift and receive that gift of salvation. Oh, you're elect. Yeah, he chose you. But it doesn't mean he didn't cho choose someone else. He chose everybody. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was not what's called a limited atonement, but rather that he, he gave himself for all mankind. I remember when I was getting ready to be ordained. 
And let me tell you, that issue uh, of ordination is something that's heavy because you have to stand before the church and you have to answer all kinds of theological questions. And it's, it's a lot of fun and it's going to be a wonderful thing. And I'm just staring at one person in particular uh, right now. And it's a wonderful thing. It, it, honestly, it is, it is a, a great thing. But there's something about the idea of having to not have your notes in front of you and prepare a message, but literally just have pastors seemingly for fun, just lobbing questions at you about the Bible, knowing that you have to answer every single one of those questions with verse or verses. And Pastor Turner, my pastor at the time, which some of you have heard here preach here at Liberty, I remember him saying, you know, Adam, why don't we do a little bit of practice? I want you to come to my office after soul winning. We had soul winning on, on Tuesday at the time. And he said, uh, I want you to come to my office. And I want to help you practice. And then that way you'll be ready for church on Wednesday. And I said, okay, that, that makes sense. And I thought I was ready. And he says this, the first question, he says, how do you know salvation is available to all mankind? I thought, how do I know salvation is available for all mankind? I started getting kind of nervous. I was already nervous anyway. I was anxious. I couldn't recall. And he just looks at me in this, with eyes of both disappointment and also incredulousness. Like, how could you not think of this? He goes, John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the most popular verse in the Bible, what does it say? Basically this, we're all elect according to the foreknowledge of God, but that we must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That was the Father's role in salvation. Isn't that what it says right here? But it wasn't just the Father. Um, and, and by the way, write this down and read this later because it will help you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Follow that up later and it tells you that that foreknowledge of God and that understanding also comes with faith. That it's our faith in that gospel message that brings salvation. That it's not simply just that God has elected some and then sent some to be damned in hell for all eternity. No, that's not what he says. But it, it's the Father who's involved in our election, but it also is the Spirit who's involved in our sanctification. Did you see that? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. This means that the Spirit is involved in setting us apart for God through salvation. Meaning this, before we belong to our father the devil, that's what Jesus said, but we've been sanctified, we've been set apart for His purpose positionally we've been sanctified meaning this before I was set apart for the purposes of Satan in this world and now I've been set apart for the purposes of God and the Spirit has not only done that in my life but he's also going to empower me to be able to live that life for him John 16 13 says this Howbeit, when he the Spirit of truth has come he will guide you to all truth for he shall not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Much of the Holy Spirit's ministry is this, to make much of Jesus. Much of the Holy Spirit's ministry is simply this, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. You say, why don't we hear much of the Holy Spirit today? Well, the more we hear about the ministry of Jesus, then the more the Holy Spirit is glorified, because that is his job to be able to do so. And we're sanctified and we're set apart for that very thing. But then it says this, it's the Son it's the Father, it's the Spirit, it's the Son. Look again at verse 2. Through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You realize this, that it was the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins that secured our salvation. 
I was talking about this with someone just a few weeks ago, how the blood of Jesus Christ is often not emphasized and the blood of Jesus Christ is often not talked about, but to do so means that you have to ignore a whole swath of verses, not just throughout the New Testament, but also throughout the Old Testament that spoke of those things being a shadow of that which was to come with Jesus dying on the cross. In fact, look at verse number 18 and 19. Drop down there real quick. It says this, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Meaning you could not be saved by anything that had monetary value. You could not be saved with anything that resulted in your own works. But, however, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hebrews 10.4 says this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. It was never possible that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament could save a soul. But what was it? It was a picture of that which was to come to point people to Jesus Christ. And as we look back now, we can look back at, those blood, at the blood of the bulls and blood of the goats and the sacrifices. And it's great for us to go through the Old Testament, look at those things and understand those things. But all it does, again, is point us to Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made when he applied his blood to the mercy seat, as we just saw uh, in our study of Revelation just on Wednesday night. But do you realize this gift of salvation, this incredible effort, it's not me working to achieve my salvation. It's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost working together in connection to see you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's an amazing thing. We, we just read in Psalm 91. Uh, he knows our name. Did you catch that? He knows our name out of 7 billion people, almost 8 billion people that walk this earth today and the billions more that have before you and I arrived here uh, on this planet. What do we realize? He knows me. He knows the hairs of my head or how many I've lost in the last year. And I can tell you it's been a few. I'm not blaming anybody in this room. I'm just saying he knows them all. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved you so much that they put in that effort to see you saved. So one, there's an incredible effort. But I see this. There's an inc incomparable expectation. An incomparable expectation. Look at verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, life is full of expectations, isn't it? Brother Dan just preached, uh, not last Wednesday night, but the Wednesday night before, and talked much about expectations and how we need to set our expectations right. If you didn't hear that, I hope that you do listen to that. It was a really great message from John chapter 11. But expectations are just part of life. You know, you expect that the ball game you paid money for will be a good one, uh, except the home team gets blown out, and then you paid $30 for a hot dog. You know, I realize that Fenway, this isn't part of the message, but I need to get something off my chest. I realize that Fenway was a racket. When I bought stuff there for $35 that I could have bought at Cumberland Farms for three! Amen. Expectations. I feel better now. I don't know about you, but I feel better. You know, you expect the concert to be good, but then the acoustics are bad where you're sitting, and it causes disappointment. You expect the vacation to be great, but then everyone's fighting with each other while they're on vacation, and then you got to pay for it when you get home. Yeah, 
Life's full of expectations and sometimes they can be disappointing. But can I tell you that as much as there's a lot of things in life that don't live up to the billing, that don't live up to the hype, can I tell you the one thing that I can promise you not only will live up to the hype, but isn't even in accord with what the hype is because it's so far greater is the fact of our salvation through Jesus Christ. It's not just as good as you think, it's better than you can think. And it's better than your mind can conceive. How great our salvation is. It's an incomparable expectation. It's beyond compare. It's better than we can imagine by a factor that we can't even comprehend. Our verse here says not just that we have hope, we have lively hope. We don't just receive that lively hope through God's mercy, but through His abundant mercy. And you may not comprehend this fully this morning, and I certainly know that I can't comprehend this fully this morning, but the fact of the matter is, is that all of this was secured for us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So all of this incomprehensible expectation that's laid before us was secured by something that's equally incomprehensible. That the Son of God would be slain of His own accord. Now that's important. No, he wasn't tricked by the Romans. He wasn't forced by the Jews. He's the Lamb who willingly laid down his life. For you and I, read Isaiah 53. And what happened? He, was di he died, was buried, but he rose again to be able to give us that incomparable expectation. And because he died, we can live. Because of his death, we have hope not just in this life, but in the life to come. And what's great about this incomparable expectation is that the Trinity was involved in this as well. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all active in the work of the resurrection. Romans 8, 11 says this, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwelleth in you. That same resurrection power, listen, that same resurrection power lives in you today if you're saved. Amen. Unbelievable. John 10, 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. That's what I just mentioned about Jesus. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, all active in the work of resurrection. But this should not surprise us because God is one God and He's inseparable even as He has three persons in His divine nature. You say, Pastor, how do you explain it? I don't know, but it just is. He's one God, but works in these three divine persons, but yet still is one God. The hope that we have, it's incomparable. It's a lively hope. It's abundant mercy. Do you see what I'm saying here when I said we can take any of these phrases, we can take any of these concepts and build a sermon out of them and have enough to keep us busy for a while? But yet I just want us to understand here just how amazing the faith that we have truly is. There's an incomparable effort. There's an uh, incredible effort. There's an incomparable expectation. And, and finally, I want us to look at this. There's an incorruptible eternity. There's an incorruptible eternity. Mankind messes up a lot of things, doesn't it? In fact, can we put it this way? Pretty much whatever we can get our hands on, we mess up. You know, we look at the creation that's around us and we see what God has created. 
And mankind typically doesn't make it better. That's why you can find McDonald's wrappers, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Or you can look at Mount Everest where they say there's some of the highest concentrations of trash in the world because people have hiked up with some of these things and just left it there on the way back. What man gets a hold of, we typically don't make better or more pristine. We usually kind of mess it up, don't we? But let's link the end of verse number three with this thought of an incorruptible eternity. It says at the end of verse number three, he has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection, resurrection rather, of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible. Now stop there for a moment. Talking about the resurrection and inheritance. For there to be an inheritance, someone has to die. Again, these verses aren't just pearls on a string that aren't connected. These are chains and a link that are connected one to another. So there's an inheritance, but that inheritance is only available because someone had to die. Now, I don't know if you've ever been through the process of receiving an inheritance before. I hope you've not been in the process of giving an inheritance. If you have, I would be surprised that you're here. But uh, some of you have to think about that a little bit later, but that's all right. Uh, but if you've received an inheritance, you, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, it's funny that many are disappointed in inheritance, and there's many reasons for it. You've heard of times when people were cut out of a will unexpectedly. Or maybe the person writing the will didn't have the funds that everyone thought they had. It seems like a lot of times, I mean, there's stories where sometimes people didn't realize that they had a, a, a rich, uh, you know, great, great uncle somewhere who willed them several million dollars. You read those stories in the news every once in a while. But for the most part, it seems like there's a lot of disappointment <laughs> that is connected with people when it comes to this issue of inheritance. It reminds me of the story I told this years ago about a 67-year-old carpenter named Russell Herman. He died in 1994, and his will included a staggering set of bequests. In his plan for the distribution of the funds was more than $2 billion for the city of East St. Louis, a billion and a half for the state of Illinois, two and a half billion for the National Forest System, and to top off the list, he left $6 trillion to the government to help pay off the national debt. Boy, the good old days when that would have worked in 1994. The only problem, although he was amazingly generous, was that his only asset when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile, which while considered a classic car today would not cover any of those type things. You know, when it comes to inheritance, a lot of times there's disappointment because of what is passed from one to the next. And typically it's this, there's not enough to fulfill the expectations of the person who is the receiver. But can I promise you here this morning that when it comes to the inheritance that you and I have, that, that inheritance that's laid up for us in heaven, there will be no disappointment. There will be no expectation that is unfulfilled. Why? Because it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It fadeth not away. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's incorruptible. It's intact. It's infinite. And it's saved for you for eternity. And it's not only that, but it's kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Meaning this, you're not going to get to see it now, but if you trust in the power of God, then know this, it's better than you can even imagine. And by the way, that, that's not just talking about the life to come. It is talking about that, but remember this, salvation isn't just about the life to come, it's about the here and now. 
And I would submit to you that life being saved when we fully submit ourselves to God is far greater than you can imagine. And if that's the case about this sin-cursed earth, how much greater will be in eternity with Him? It's incorruptible, undefiled. It's infinite. It fadeth not away. Reserved in heaven for you. I've heard preachers say this before. They'll say all this in heaven too. All this in heaven too. And it's true, isn't it? That God gives us all this. And there's sorrows and sadness along our, tri our, our trials and travails here in this life. But yet God has infinitely blessed us if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if we were to just get this blessed life He gives us here, and that was it, we'd have nothing to complain about. But to get all this, an eternity in heaven with our Lord and Savior, it's unbelievable. Kept safe for us through the power of God, verse number five, safer than the strongest lock and more secure than the largest safe. Better than Fort Knox. The salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is secure. You'll remember that in 2 Peter, we saw that we had precious faith. Remember that it wasn't just faith, it was precious faith. Can you see some reasons now why we have a precious faith? Oh, it's incredible effort by Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. An incomparable ex, uh, expectation of abundant mercy and a lively hope and an eternity that's reserved in heaven for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. You ever been somewhere before and everyone's just trying to get in and maybe no one can, but you've got access? Feels good, doesn't it? I remember when I was a teenager. In fact, I remember the day I looked it up just recently. April 21st, 1996, the Tampa Bay Lightning were playing the Philadelphia Flyers in hockey. And back in those days, because the Tampa Bay Lightning weren't playing in Tampa, their arena wasn't built yet, they were playing at Tropicana Field, where the Rays, who now exist, play uh, baseball. And at the time, the day my dad and I went to this game, it was the largest crowd the NHL had ever had, about 30,000 people that were there. That was before they played games outside and the stuff that they do now. 30,000 people. My dad said, that said the, the Tampa Bay Lightning had never been in the playoffs before. He said, let's get tickets. That was hard for us to do because we didn't have a lot of money growing up. But because they were selling 30,000 tickets, you could get seats in the nosebleed section for about 10 or 15 bucks. And, you know, back then, uh, you know, you couldn't, it was so high you couldn't actually see the puck down there. But it was okay. You were in the building and it sounded like fun. So I said, let's do it. My dad had the, this was before, you know, now you go online and, and, and you have to buy tickets for things. I don't know if you've heard about those kind of things. And the government's very interested in those things and how there's bots and things like that. It's amazing how they're more interested uh, in Taylor Swift tickets than they are in, like, actual problems. But anyway, I digress. You didn't come here for political commentary. But again, I feel better. So anyway, back in those days, you had to stand in line for tickets most of the time if you wanted tickets. But I remember that my dad had reserved tickets ahead of time. He had called, and we went to the will call. And they were reserved for us. And I remember a line of people trying to buy tickets. And then they had this sign that came out, sold out. And then those people just kind of scattered. And they were trying to buy tickets from scalpers to be able to get in, paying several times over what the actual price was. But my dad and I just went right up to the will call. Two tickets, please. Your name, Rivero. Right here, Mr. Rivero. 
go on in and enjoy. You know, it felt good to walk past all those people, say, good luck. We're going to go in and watch the game, by the way. The Lightning won 5-4 to four in overtime. And uh, I know you were really concerned about that, but I thought I'd let you know. I had nothing to do with the result, but it was a good game. But that feeling of getting in somewhere that you know you probably don't belong <laughs> is good. Can I tell you that there's a reservation available for you in a place called heaven that's not a game? And can I tell you that the price that was paid is not a ticket? There's not a fee? It was paid by something far greater than you can imagine. The precious blood of Christ. Remember that? It was paid for us. Do you realize that ticket's reserved for you right now? It's waiting for you to pick it up. You've been elect. According to the foreknowledge of God, the ticket's available. You just have to receive it. And that's what I would encourage you today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, will you receive the gift of salvation today? There is no gift on this world that can compare. You will never receive a gift that is of this great value or that had this much sacrifice that was involved. Every gift that is given to you in this life will slowly fade away. It will slowly break down. It might get lost. But this gift is incorruptible, undefiled, it's reserved in heaven for you. There's no game, folks. We're talking about life or death. We're talking about eternity. There are consequences for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. There is a very real heaven. But the Bible says that someday those who do not receive Jesus Christ their Savior will be cast into a lake of fire. Will they be separated from God for all eternity? Although the torment of the flames will be real, the greatest torment of all will be for the very first time recognizing being completely and totally separated from any influence of God whatsoever and living with that knowledge for all eternity. Oh, it's a literal hell. The flames are real. But separation from God. The choices are real today. If you know Jesus Christ, your Savior, we want to add to our faith this year, don't we? That's our desire. We want to grow this year, don't we? But we've got to remember where we came from. But we also have to remember this. This isn't just about where we came from, what we have here. These are the gifts that we live with every single day. You know, some of you might get up in the morning. I think we all could say this to some extent. You get up and get ready for the day, and maybe you look at the bank account, and you say, hmm, not as much as I was hoping for. Now, if you don't say that, hey, God bless you. That's great. Can I be your friend? No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you don't say that, that's, that's great. No, that's great. All joking aside, that's a great thing. But, but, but many of us say, oh, okay, well, maybe wanting more. Do you realize that the greatest gifts of all reside with you this very moment if you know Jesus Christ, your Savior? Oh, oh, and I'm, I'm just, oh, oh just, you're just saying that to make me feel better. No, I'm saying it because it's true. By the way, the money in your account will go up and down. 401ks can go up and down like the stock market. Inheritances can disappear. But you know what you have here is incomparable in the salvation that you receive. And maybe you're a little discouraged today.
Maybe you're a little down. Maybe you don't have what you think you should have in this life. Could you just dwell on this fact that if God never put one more penny in your bank account and you were to pass from this life, you would leave this life a most blessed person for having this gift of salvation. And by the way, if that gift is so incredible, we ought to tell someone about it. We ought to let someone know about it. We ought to invest in his ministry. We ought to tell other people. We ought to be part of what his plan is because other people need to know there's hope in the gospel. If we're going to add to our faith this year, we've got to know what we're adding to. And either that means you need to be in the faith and get saved today or you need to recognize how wonderful it is because that just makes us want to add to it even more. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.